Welcome. This is Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Be sure to log on to our website, www.cato.org, for a full archive of our podcast as well as many other audio offerings. Self-identified neoconservatives are at the forefront of the push for war with Iran. Most recently, Ruel Mark Gorecht of the American Enterprise Institute argued on Cato's online magazine, Cato Unbound, for airstrikes on the Islamic Republic. Bill Kristol has made similar arguments in his magazine, The Weekly Standard. Cato's senior editor, Gene Healy, believes that war is central to the neoconservative philosophy, who it's with and what it's about being entirely beside the point. In today's podcast, Gene states his case. In an issue of The Weekly Standard last summer, Bill Kristol asked his readers, Why wait? Does anyone think a nuclear Iran can be contained? So why, after what's happening with Iraq, are self-described neoconservatives still convinced that more war is the answer to the Middle East? Well, I take them at their word that they think that the Iranian regime is undeterrable. I mean, I don't believe that to be the case, but I believe that they're convinced of that. You would think that after what's happened in Iraq, that neoconservatives would be a little leery of calling so loudly for more wars, but in some ways they seem to be undeterrable themselves. Well, we can debate any of these individual wars, but there's sort of a larger issue that I think is interesting as well. If you look at current foreign policy debates in the Middle East, and if you look back at what neoconservatives were saying throughout the 1990s, what becomes increasingly clear is that war is central to neoconservatism as a political philosophy. War is, to some extent, actually good in itself, in a way. We're talking now a lot about the Middle East, obviously. But for neoconservatives, I don't think the question of war is just about the Middle East. And despite what some people insinuate, neither is it all about Israel. If you look back to the year before September 11th, the Weekly Standard was screaming bloody murder because we hadn't taken a tough enough line with China over the spy plane incident when one of our surveillance planes went down on Chinese territory. Before that, you had a number of neoconservatives, including Bill Kristol, vigorously supporting the Kosovo War, which didn't have anything to do at all with American security. So the 1990s, in a way, before September 11th, was sort of a search for an enemy. There was sort of an uncomfortable period for neoconservatives. The Soviet Union was gone, and there really wasn't anybody important for America to fight. You can actually see this in the 1996 article that Bill Kristol and Robert Kagan wrote in Foreign Affairs, where they basically, it's called Towards a Neo-Reaganite Foreign Policy. And like neo and conservatism, neo-Reaganite was not really much like the foreign policy that Ronald Reagan actually practiced. Anyway, in this article, they basically admitted that there weren't any real threats out there, but we needed to stay on a war footing anyway. And they wrote that the post-Cold War question where is the threat, is misconceived. In a world in which peace and American security depend upon American power and the will to use it, the main threat that the United States faces now and in the future is its own weakness. The threat, in a way, for them was the lack of threats. And the idea that's underneath all of this seems to be that American dominance depends on fighting wars, wars that both keep us sharp and they also let the rest of the world know how tough we are. That may sound a little flip, but I don't think it sounds as flip as the way the American Enterprise Institute's Michael Ledine put it a few years back when he said, every 10 years or so, the United States needs to pick up some small, crappy little country and throw it against the wall just to show the world that we mean business. What you see when you look at recent history and recent foreign policy debates, 
that who we go to war with is sort of a secondary consideration for many neoconservatives. The really important thing is that we go to war. Let's take a step back for a moment. How do you define the term neoconservative and the neoconservatives' role in the conservative movement? The shortest definition I've seen was Irving Kristol's when he said that a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality, which is a fun quip, and there's also a little bit of truth to it. The original neoconservatives were disaffected leftists. You had one wave of ex-Trotskyites who had become disillusioned with the Soviet Union, people like Irving Kristol, Bill Kristol's father. And you also had another wave of liberal Democrats who became alienated by the new left in the 1960s. Today, prominent neoconservatives include the Crystals, Norman Potteritz and his son John, William Bennett, Gene Kirkpatrick, the Council on Foreign Relations, Max Boot, James Q. Wilson, former Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, and I would add Newt Gingrich to that list. As you can see from looking at that list, you don't really have to be a former leftist anymore to be a neoconservative. You just sort of have to share some of the policy attitudes that the original neoconservatives had. The neoconservatives are concerned about cultural decline, the coarseness of American culture. They, as mentioned, have an aggressive Wilsonian posture in foreign policy. And on most things, they are the polar opposite from libertarians in the Goldwater wing of conservatism. For one thing, they're totally at peace with the New Deal and the welfare state. Irving Kristol wrote a piece about 10 years ago where he called for a quote-unquote conservative welfare state that would promote conservative values and virtues. And that really seems to be a lot of what the Bush administration has taken to heart over the last five years or so. So they sound like big government conservatives. Why is war so important to that vision? Well, yeah, they are big government conservatives. And in a way, the domestic and foreign policies are linked. I think you can best see this by looking at the subset of neoconservatives who call themselves national greatness conservatives. Bill Kristol is one of them, and the New York Times' David Brooks is another one. They seem to see national greatness coming not necessarily from entrepreneurial activity, or for people living their lives as they see fit, but more from bold, inspiring government action. David Brooks once wrote that ultimately American purpose can only find its voice in Washington. And Washington is really at its loudest and most purposeful when it's got a war to fight. If you read the Weekly Standard much, you notice that their favorite president is Teddy Roosevelt. And Roosevelt once said, in strict confidence, I should welcome almost any war because I think the country needs one. TR thought that war was just great for the national spirit and it helped to keep the manly virtues alive. And neoconservatives and national greatness conservatives like Brooks share with Roosevelt this notion that commercial culture, bourgeois culture, is just a little bit petty and kind of embarrassing and small-minded and a little bit shameful. And a lot of the national greatness conservatives seem to think that it would be better if instead of pursuing our own private interests, that we were always engaged in a grand national crusade and we're all going off to bond drives and saving scrap metal for bullets and stuff, like in World War II. What would adopting this World War model, whether we're talking about World War Three or Four, mean for the war on terror? It's funny that what passes for a foreign policy debate among neoconservatives now is uh, which world war we're in. Newt Gingrich says it's World War III. Norman Potteritz says it's World War IV because he counts the Cold War as World War III. 
but they do all seem to be united around this great global struggle, total war concept. And I think it does have real implications for the war on terror. Abroad, what it would mean is several more wars. Newt Gingrich recently had a piece on the American Enterprise Institute's website suggesting that, you know, maybe Iran, possibly Syria, possibly North Korea. What you might see in those wars is a greater tolerance for civilian casualties. Some neoconservatives are now dropping hints that one of the reasons we're having trouble in Iraq is maybe that we haven't killed enough people. John Potteritz, Norman's son, wrote a column a couple months ago in the New York Post, and he asked, what if the mistake we made in Iraq is that we didn't kill enough Sunnis in the early going to intimidate them and make them so afraid of us that they would go along with anything? Wasn't the survival of Sunni men between the ages of 15 and 35 the reason there was an insurgency and the basic cause of sectarian violence now? There does seem to be an undercurrent of tolerance for really taking the gloves off in this world war model. That's what I think it might mean abroad. What it would mean at home most likely is a permanent war footing and more restrictions on civil liberties. Max Boot recently wrote an op-ed called Forget Privacy, We Need to Spy More. And I think that's one of the directions we'd be going in. Their favorite constitutional theorist is another fellow affiliated with the American Enterprise Institute, John Yu, who also worked at the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel from 2001 to 2003. And when he was at OLC, he was really the point man on legal doctrine for the Bush administration. He designed an entire alternative constitution for the administration, something you might call the neo-constitution. In the original Constitution, Congress has the power to declare war. You have a Fourth Amendment and the right to habeas corpus. But this new Constitution, the neo-Constitution, is a lot simpler. You've just got one branch. That branch has all the powers. It's got the power to launch wars without going to Congress, to wiretap without going to a judge, and even to lock up American citizens indefinitely without ever having to provide cause or answering to a judge. This is the constitutional theory that a lot of neoconservatives have adopted. Basically, I, I think this would be a huge mistake, and I don't see how, whether it's World War III or World War IV, this is really going to fix the sorts of problems that we face with al-Qaeda. We've sort of tried this approach on a smaller scale in Iraq, and it doesn't seem to be helping. The recent national intelligence estimate we had makes it clear that Iraq's really given al-Qaeda a shot in the arm in terms of terrorist recruitment. But in the face of that sort of evidence, the neoconservatives are continuing to push for more war. They started out as liberals mugged by reality, but they really seem to have a relationship with reality that's a lot different these days. They're denying reality altogether. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.